0: So in our elaborate journey of Luke-Acts, as we've been studying from one end of Luke and we're going to go to the other end of Acts, uh, we've been looking at four major themes that go from the beginning of Luke all the way till the end of Acts. So let me review them for us so we may all see how these themes have emerged through the various passages that we've considered so far and how it will emerge in today's passage as well and how they're going to emerge in the passages that will be considered later. In our journey of Acts. And as the story moves forward, we'll be amazed to see how intricately Luke has weaved all these themes together in the passage. So, so the first thing, so the first thing that we have as a theme or a major theme is the issue of salvation. It is the issue of salvation. How is it possible? for Gentiles to become the people of God and be put on an equal footing with the Jews? How is it possible for the Gentiles, people who are not part of the Jewish community or the Jewish race, how is it possible for Gentiles to become part of the people of God and be put on an equal footing with the Jews? Now, Luke has answered this question so far, both in the Gospel of Luke, but especially in the first few passages of Acts, by telling us that God has directed the entire process. He's highlighting that it is a process directed by God. And we're going to look at the summary of it in today's passage. But as we move further in the, in the book of Acts, we will see many dimensions of this that come up. <clears throat> so that's the first thing, the issue of salvation, which is a major theme in Luke-Acts. The second one is the negative response of the Jewish nation. The negative response of the Jewish nation. While God is moving his plan forward, why were the Jewish people responding largely negatively to the gospel, or to the message of hope? Why were the Jewish people responding largely negatively, especially as epitomized in the responses of the Jewish leadership? Why were they responding negatively to the gospel message. Why were they rejecting the message of hope when they ought to be the natural audience for this message? So as this gospel of hope, the message of salvation was being taken to the Jewish people, they were not just rejecting it, but they were even persecuting and opposing the people who took that message to them. So has God rejected the Jewish nation? Luke answers all these questions in acts very clearly and we're going to study that as well but we're going to study part of it in today's passage the third thing the third theme that we've seen so far is the role of Jesus in the plan of God the role of Jesus in the plan of God what part does Jesus play in the plan of God how does Jesus bring to fulfillment God's promises who is Jesus in fact to do all these things in the plan of God. This is a major theme in Luke-Acts. In the Gospel of Luke, we saw very clearly that Luke is presenting the identity of Jesus by showing us that he did things that only God could do. And all of a sudden, in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, we see that he's exalted. He's ascended, he's exalted to the very right hand of God. That's Luke's Christology. He's presenting for us who Jesus is and what is his role in the plan of God. <clears throat> and finally, you have. So sometimes going faster than me, sometimes slower. <laughs> All right. So the last one is, what is uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What can we as believers expect when we follow Jesus? How should a believer in Jesus live until he returns and and until the hope is realized for all of us? How should believers in Christ live until he returns and until the hope is realized? In other words, how should the community of God's people live? What is the hope with which they should live? What is the mission of God's people that they've been given here on earth until he comes back and until the hope is realized? All of these questions are answered, particularly in the book of Acts, but they have their starting points in the gospel of Luke. And so we see in the book of Acts especially that the disciples of Jesus, under the power of the Spirit, live and minister for Jesus in his absence. They live and minister on behalf of Jesus in his absence. And their mission is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Their mission is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So these are four major themes that we've been looking at in Luke Acts. And I want you all, and I want all of us, to keep these at the back of our minds as we look at various passages, and particularly today's passage, uh, as we're going to see how Luke has weaved intricately all of these themes into his passage. Now, Luke does something for us, especially in the book of Acts. As he narrates the story, he pauses long enough and punctuates the narrative with clear summaries. He summarizes what has happened so far in the story. And <clears throat> until this point, there have be, this is the third summary, by the way, we're going to look at, but until this point, there have been two summaries. The first summary was in Chapter 2 verses 40 through to 47 if you can turn over the page perhaps in your Bibles You will see that in chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 There we are given a summary by Luke of the life of the community of God's people He gives us a summary about the life of the community the inner life of Jerusalem church What was it like? What was the church like? What was the inner life of the church in Jerusalem like? And Luke mentions that the life involved four key aspects. Number one, apostolic teaching. Number two, fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. And number four, prayer. And he also mentions in the summary that they were all united. They were sharing things with one another, with joy. And not just that, they were also relating with the outsiders by taking the message of hope to the world outside, a world that is hungry. That's the first summary that we have in Acts about the early church. Then there's a second summary that we have in chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. Chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. Here, Luke describes for us the love within the community. The love within the community of God's people. Each person in the community voluntarily brings what he has. He sells everything that he has and brings the money to the apostles' feet so that they can joyfully share it with anybody who had need within the community. They were joyfully sharing things and they held everything in common. And the section ends for us with the outstanding example of Barnabas. So in short, I wanna capture the story thus far before we get to the summary that we have on hand today. Uh, Which is Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Here's a summary of the story so far in three lines. Number one is the church, which is the community of Jesus, is gaining a good reputation with the outsiders. It's gaining a good reputation with the outsiders because the apostles are performing miracles and people are awed by the apostles and their power they are bringing a lot of people who are sick and demon possessed to them and they are healing them and not just that those miracles are forming a kind of an affirmation to the message that they are preaching and people by the thousands are coming to know the lord jesus christ they're getting baptized and they're becoming part of the church they're getting added to the church now as more and more numbers are getting added to the church This is bringing an unfavorable response from the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership is alarmed, it's getting agitated, they're concerned about this new movement that has arisen within the Jewish community. What do we do now? Everybody is following something called the way. So they start to oppose this movement from outside. There is persecution, there is opposition that is coming. So there is severe opposition against the community and its message. So the third summary that we have on hand today describes for us the activities of the church. The activities of the church. Now, hear me, please. This summary, interestingly for us, is sandwiched between the judgment that came upon Ananias and Sapphira and also the persecution that comes from the Jewish leadership, the second arrest of the apostles that's gonna happen in, in chapter five. So it is sandwiched for us, the passage for today is sandwiched between the judgment that came upon Ananias and Sapphira, and also the persecution that is going to follow. So the question is, there is judgment that has happened internally. There's a kind of a church discipline because of sin in the church. God himself had to step in and discipline a couple. And then, after this passage comes opposition from without, from outside. There's going to be persecution and arrest that's going to come. So, as Luke sandwiches this passage for us between these two realities, the interpretive framework for us is very clear. We need to ask the question, how are the disciples, how is the church going to take the mission forward in light of these two realities? Number one, there's a fear. That God is going to judge us because he requires holiness of us. There is purity required in the church. Otherwise, judgment may fall. But on the other hand, outside there's persecution as well. But the mission is something that God has given us and we must take it forward. So how is the early church going to take the mission forward In light of these two realities, one that is judgment from God because of sin, and the second thing is persecution from Jewish leadership. So that's what we're going to see in today's passage, where Luke is summarizing for us in five crisp verses the life of the church as it relates to the community outside. So today's passage will reveal to us two things that you and I must know Two things that you and I must know about allegiance to Jesus and his gospel. Allegiance to Jesus and his gospel. And Luke discusses these two features for us in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. So the first thing that we'll see is in verses 12 and 13. And I want you all to follow along, please. It's going to be a very simple sermon. Uh, It's a summary that Luke is giving, but like I said, we already have the interpretive framework for, uh, for the message, and we will see what allegiance to Jesus and his gospel means. So in verses 12 and 13, you will see that following Jesus requires our serious commitment, not mere respect for him. Following Jesus requires our serious, wholehearted commitment, not mere respect for him. There is a price to pay to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, hear me, please. I say this to you sincerely as I say this to myself as I stand here. There is a sacrifice that needs to be made. There is a price that needs to be paid to be a disciple of Jesus. You can't be a fan of Jesus. There is a wholehearted commitment that is needed. It is radically different from, hear me, please. It is radically different from, merely being impressed with Jesus or his power or his love or the fellowship that comes because of Jesus. It is radically different from just being merely impressed with the externals that come because of Jesus. There's a wholehearted commitment that is needed. And Luke is making this point in his summary. He says that, fear gripped Christians while others esteemed the apostles highly as miracles continued at their hands in the temple. Now this requires some explanation and we will do that as we follow Luke's three-step argument for us to understand how we have derived this principle. First thing, Luke says that the apostles were regularly performing miracles in the temple courts. The apostles were regularly performing miracles in the temple courts. Look at verse 12, please, all of us in our Bibles. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, if you remember in chapter four, verses 23 through 31, uh, I think Joby took us through the passage, Uh, The church prayed for two things. There was an attack on the apostles and uh, they were released and they come back home to their own. And when they shared about the warning that the Jewish leadership had given them, that they were asked not to preach in the name of Jesus or not to preach the name of Jesus itself, the church did two things or prayed for two things. Number one, they said they were praying for boldness and enablement to preach the gospel. Remember that? They prayed not for the persecution to be taken away, or not for the crushing of opposition, but they prayed that through the persecution, they would be enabled, they'd be courageous, they'd be given the courage to take the mission forward. That's number one. Number two, they also prayed that God would perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus, so that these signs would affirm the message that they were preaching. Yes, They they prayed that God would extend his hand and he would perform miracles through the name of Jesus. And now here, as we read this verse in chapter 5, verse 12, God is answering that prayer. God is answering that prayer. Now, in light of that, look at the verse once again. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Specifically, what Luke is trying to say here is that it is not just Peter who was doing it, but all the apostles were regularly, continually performing miracles. And especially, they were performing miracles in a place in the temple called Solomon's Portico. Remember, in chapter 3, they were in the same place of Solomon's Portico. And it is a prominent, a prominent place in the outer court of the temple where a large number of people could gather And all these large numbers were gathering uh, at this known locale. And perhaps that is the reason why the apostles were going there regularly. So that people would know where they would be and a large number would gather. And there's also a place where large numbers could gather and therefore the apostles would go there regularly. Now when we go back to chapter three, we have already seen a sign and a wonder that God did through the hands of the apostles. Remember in chapter three, when uh, Peter and John were uh, going to the temple in the afternoon, there was a man crippled from birth. He was about 40 years old and he expected to get something gold or silver from Peter. But Peter looks at him and says, gold or silver I don't have, but what I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And the Bible says the man leaped to his feet and he ran into the temple. Now imagine somebody who's been crippled for 40 years. He doesn't need physiotherapy, you know. So when Peter says, get up, rise up and walk, he leaped to his feet and he ran into the temple. That was Peter's miracle. Perhaps John also had a part in it. But now here, all the apostles were regularly performing miraculous works. And they are specially called here for the Jewish populace as signs. They were performing in public, in front of the Jewish audience, and they were called signs. Signs because they pointed to something and they prepared way for the witness to the word. They prepared way for witness to the word. Now hear me please. Miracles, even in the New Testament times, are not an end in themselves. They pointed to something else. And here, They were pointing a way for witness to the word. But we should not miss the point of these miracles here. The point here is that that God is at work. God is at work in this new community. God is at work in this new community of God's people as they take the mission forward. So God is at work through the apostolic ministry. And I want us all to notice one more thing in the verse, please. Look at the verse once again, the last part of it and they were all together in Solomon's portico. They were all together in Solomon's portico. Who is this all referring to? Who is this all referring to? Now, there are various interpretations for this, something that it includes the believers as well, but for contextual reasons, I think it is best to understand it as referring only to the apostles, okay? So the apostles were regularly performing miracles in the temple courts. That's the first thing that Luke tells us. The second thing then is that the believers hesitated to join hands with the apostles due to fear. The believers hesitated to join hands with the apostles due to fear. Look at the first part of verse 13. None of the rest dared join them. None of the rest dared join them. Now, if you are reading the NIV, in the previous verse, it could have said, believers, right? Again, I said it's an interpretive issue. Uh, I personally believe that it was referring to the apostles. Okay, now this verse uh, that we just read, none of the rest dared join them. It reflects an interesting contrast to verse 12 that we just read. Because we need to ask the question here, who are the rest who did not dare to join the apostles? If we've established that verse 12 is talking about the apostles, who are the rest who did not dare to join with the apostles. Now there are a few options that scholars have given, but I think the best possibility is that it represents believers who recognize the tense environment in which the apostles were performing their ministry in the temple. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? It refers to the believers who recognize that the apostles were performing a ministry in a tense environment, in a hostile environment. Now, we need to understand something very importantly. The idea, perhaps, in their minds is, why should we place ourselves at unnecessary risk? Why should we place ourselves at unnecessary risk? It is one thing to be an object of persecution and be prepared for it. It is one thing to be an object of persecution and be prepared for it. But it's quite another thing for a group knowingly to go and seek after persecution when it is not necessary, especially as the other apostles are successfully performing a ministry. And therefore, this group of believers just hesitated to join with the apostles because they were performing in the temple a ministry in a hostile, tense environment. But one more thing. There could be another reason why they hesitated to join with the apostles. What happened in the previous context? The judgment of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, the believers also began to understand that this is not a joke to be part of the church. Isn't it? It requires holiness. Because what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They were struck down. And Let's go back to chapter 5, verse 11, please. Look at, look at how clearly Luke is capturing for us. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great fear came upon them. And therefore, that fear is something that Luke is capturing in this summary as well. Number one, because of hostile environment from outside. Number two, also perhaps because of the fear that this judgment generated in believers, they were hesitating to join in the ministry of the apostles in the temple. They may have been frightened that a half-hearted allegiance to Jesus may lead to judgment. So the believers hesitated to join with the apostles due to fear. Thirdly, the people, awed by the power of the apostles, had a great respect for them. The people awed by the power of the apostles had a great respect for them. Look at the second part of verse 13. But the people held them in high esteem. Now, Luke is contrasting this people with the other rest, right? The other rest were believers who didn't want to join, who hesitated to join in the ministry of the apostles that they were performing in the temple. Now, here it's the general people. The general people who saw the power of the apostles through the miracles, they held the apostles in high esteem. They were impressed by the power that these people were wielding in the name of Jesus. But interestingly, they did not run up and join the band of Christians just because they saw power. But they were impressed by power. They were looking at the power that the apostles were having because of these miracles, and they watched them from a distance, and they were impressed by it. They were awed by their power, and they even praised them they had great respect for them. However, the crowd was unwilling to fully submit to the source of that power because it required commitment. Did you hear that? The crowd was unwilling to submit to the source of that power because it required commitment. Brothers and sisters, I sincerely wanna ask you this question in application. And I wanna ask myself very sincerely this question. How do you describe your commitment to Jesus? How do I describe my commitment to Jesus? Do you see it as a mere respect for Him, or His power, or His teachings, or His love, or the fellowship that comes because of Him? Or is your commitment wholehearted? Is my commitment wholehearted? Do you love him more than you love everything else? Do I love him more than I love everything else? Does my lifestyle, and I want to ask myself this question sincerely, please. Does my lifestyle show that I love Jesus more than I love the things of the world? Does my lifestyle show the world and even my fellow believers, That I love Jesus more than I love the things of the world. Because remember, in Luke's gospel, Jesus said this. If anyone wishes to come after me, can you say it? He must deny himself, take up his cross, how often? Daily and follow me. He also said that foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You know, a Christian woman walked up to a pastor and she asked this question. Will you please tell me in a word what commitment to Jesus means? In one word, very simply, will you please tell me what commitment to Jesus means? And then he held out, the pastor did, he held out a blank sheet of paper and he said this. It is signing your name at the bottom and handing this paper over to Jesus saying, do with my life whatever you want to do. Did you hear that? I think that's a good, crisp definition, a biblical definition of what commitment to Jesus is. Brothers and sisters, these are tough questions. But I think a passage like this must make us Ask these questions of ourselves. Are we disciples of Jesus only when it's convenient? Am I a disciple of Jesus only when it's comfortable for me to be a disciple? Charles Spurgeon, you know, he was saved on January 6th, 1850. So, even before a month turned, on the 1st of February he wrote this following prayer of consecration in his diary. And I want to read this for us, please. O great and unsearchable God, who knows my heart and tries all my ways with a humble dependence upon the support of your Holy Spirit, I yield up myself to you as your own reasonable sacrifice. I return to you your own. I would be forever, unreservedly, perpetually yours, while I am on earth, I would serve you, and may, may I enjoy and praise you forever. Amen. This is what he wrote about himself, even before a month after his conversion in 1850. So I want to close with this question, please, and I want all of us to think about this seriously. How do you describe your commitment to Jesus? How do I describe my commitment to Jesus? So the first thing that we saw in verses 12 and 13 is that following Jesus requires our serious commitment, not mere respect for him. Following Jesus requires our serious commitment, not mere respect for him. Then there's a second thing that we must understand about allegiance to Jesus and his gospel. And that is in verses 14 through 16. It's in verses 14 to 16, and they say that we must strive to preach the gospel to the world in spite of any challenges you and I may face. We must strive to preach the gospel to the world in spite of any challenges we may face. What we cannot do as a Christian is to simply sit without any efforts to build up the church. What we cannot afford to do as a Christian is to simply sit without any efforts in the upbuilding of the church or in the upbuilding of the kingdom. And Luke says that multitudes believed in the gospel and people from Jerusalem and its vicinity received healing as the reputation of the church spread. And I wanna explain this in three steps that Luke has for us, and we'll get into some of the details about miracles as well. So listen to me very carefully and I'll end soon. The first thing that Luke says is many believed and joined the growing community of believers. Many believed and joined the growing community of believers. Look at verse 14, please. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. How many? Multitudes of both men and women. The gospel is to both genders. The gospel of hope is for everyone, both men and women. And Luke particularly has his eyes on both genders. He talks a lot about women, especially in the first two chapters. Remember how much of uh, how much of space he is devoted to the story of Elizabeth in Luke, how much of space he is devoted to the story of Mary. He has his eyes on both genders, and that's Luke's particularity. So hear me, please. On the one hand, there was an awestruck reserve; people were afraid and they didn't want to join the uh, apostles because of the tense environment and also fear. But on the other hand, there was a great missionary success there was a great missionary success and this paradoxical situation is seen throughout the book of acts and in the early part of church history as well the presence of the living god when it's manifest through preaching is alarming to some people but it's appealing to others the presence of the living god when it's manifested through preaching is alarming to some people while it's appealing to the others. Some are frightened away while others are drawn to faith. Many believed, says Luke here. Multitudes believed. And he makes it very clear that both men and women became disciples and they were added to the growing community of believers. Now the brevity or the shortness of this account here should not be taken to mean that people simply believed because they saw miracles. You shouldn't ever think from this summary that people simply believed because they saw miracles. Throughout the book of Acts, we understand that signs and wonders authenticated the word that was preached. But they never drew people into faith. They only authenticated the message that was preached. What drew people into faith was the message of saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the gospel the message of hope that was proclaimed. So many people came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they joined the community of believers. Second thing, the people of Jerusalem benefited from the apostles' healing power. The people of Jerusalem benefited from the apostles' healing power. Look at verse 15. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. You know, after mentioning that there's a growth in the number of believers, Luke captures the resulting response. What happened? The sick were being carried out into the street and they were placed on cots and mats in the hope of being healed even by Peter's shadow. In the hope of being healed even by Peter's shadow. What is clear here is that the healing ministry was drawing attention to the message. The healing ministry was drawing attention to the message. Now, I wanna go back to Luke's gospel where a similar incident also happened. Remember, as Jesus was walking to the house of Jairus uh, to raise his daughter, what happened? A woman with the issue of flow of blood, she thinks that if only I can touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed and she comes and touches the hem of his garment and she is healed. A similar thing is happening in the life of the apostles as well as God's power is working. People are people have this belief that if only Peter's shadow could fall on me I would be healed. Now in the ancient world a person's shadow was a subject of much superstition. People believed that a shadow was an extension of the person himself. And therefore, people perhaps had this superstitious belief that if only Peter's shadow fell on me or fell on my friend, he would be healed. But Luke does not mention that such a healing took place. He only mentions there that the people believed that, right? But God may have graciously healed in those miraculous ways as well. But it seems very clear from this sentence that signs and wonders were making a significant impression on those who were living In Jerusalem the people of Jerusalem benefited from the apostles healing the last bit of it that Peter says the crowds from the places surrounding Jerusalem also came to be healed look at verse 16 the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed so crowds not just from Jerusalem but from the villages surrounding Jerusalem came to be healed by the apostles. It was a remarkable demonstration of the power of God to heal and free human beings. Now, remember, God is able to judge his own people, but God is able to heal as well and free human beings from such sicknesses. At this point, the apostles were still in Jerusalem, and people from the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming into Jerusalem to be healed by them. It's only a little later in the book of Acts, and we'll see that the apostles and their healing ministry would go into the countryside of Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, all the way to Rome, where Paul is seen in Acts chapter 28, sitting in a Roman prison and preaching the gospel of hope, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before we move forward, I just want to make some very important observation about miracles, because we've talked so much about miracles that happened in the first century in the early church. Hear me, please. The first point I want to make here about miracles is that miracles were rare, even in the Bible. Miracles were rare, even in the Bible. I heard a particular preacher say that every page of the Bible is a miracle. That's wrong. Not every page of the miracle is a Bible. They were just three short periods in history of salvation, or in salvation history, where there was a proliferation of miracles, where there was an inundation of miracles, and there was a reason for that. And these are are the three things, or these are the three periods that I will list out uh, just now for us. But I just want to say that a miracle is a supernatural event that doesn't have a human explanation. And by definition, it's a rare event. It doesn't happen every day. You know, on television, preachers come and say, get your miracle today. If it happens every day, they would, they would be called miracles. They'd be called ordinaries, right? Because if it happened every day, it's an ordinary event. But they're miracles because they are extraordinary. Because even in the biblical times, they didn't happen on a, on a daily basis. And there were three major periods in salvation history where there were miracles that were performed. Number one is at the time of Exodus and until the conquest of the promised land, so the time of Moses and Joshua. Number two, the times of the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And number three, the time of Jesus and his apostles. So these were relatively short periods of history in the salvation history of God, Uh, where miracles were performed in proliferation. And there are reasons for that. The first thing is that God was redeeming people from the land of Egypt, and he was giving a new revelation, the Mosaic Covenant, and therefore there were miracles at the hand of Moses and also through Joshua. And then when you come to Elijah and Elisha and their ministries, we see that God was setting up the prophetic ministry. It was the beginning of prophetic ministry, a new revelation once again in the nation of Israel. And then through Jesus and the apostles, the new covenant comes in, the church is born, there's a new revelation again, and therefore there is miracles being performed. The rest of the Bible does not have many miracles. People lived ordinary lives just like we do in their dependence on God. So miracles did three things. Number one, they introduced new eras of revelation. Did you hear that? Miracles introduced new eras of revelation, like Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles. Number two, miracles authenticated the messenger of the revelation. Miracles authenticated the messenger of the revelation. Remember, Moses stands before the burning bush and say, says, "How do? How, what will they tell? Uh, how will they know that you've sent me?" And what does God say? "Take the staff that's in your hand, throw it down." What happens? A serpent. It's a miracle. Miracles authenticated the messenger. Same thing was happening with Jesus and the apostles. Thirdly, miracles were intended to call attention to the revelation. Miracles were intended to call attention to the revelation. So that's the first thing that I want to say, that miracles were rare even in the Bible. Second thing, there are no miracles in the Bible, that are not directly associated with the ministry of a prophet or an apostle. There are no miracles in the Bible that are not directly associated with the ministry of a prophet or an apostle or somebody close to a prophet or somebody close to an apostle. Paul says this in uh, 2 Corinthians twelve twelve. He says this, listen carefully, please. The things that mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles, were done among you with great perseverance." Three things mark an apostle, signs, wonders, and miracles. If every believer could perform all these things, they wouldn't be the trademarks of an apostle, would they? Now, in the book of Acts and in epistles, the vast majority of miracles are performed by the apostles and their close associates. In Acts 2.22, we studied that, that Jesus was accredited by miracles, signs, and wonders, right? He was accredited by miracles, signs, and wonders. And similarly, the apostles were marked as genuine messengers from God by the miracles that they performed. So all this is to say that although God can and does heal today, we believe that his healing through the gift of healing belong primarily to the apostolic age of the first century. And I also wanna say this, the gift of healing that was there was not given to keep the believing community permanently without sickness. Did you hear that? The gift of healing was never given or or was never intended to keep the believing community or the church permanently from sickness. Otherwise, I wouldn't be struggling this morning. With the throat, you won't be struggling with a headache. That was not the purpose of miracles. Miracles authenticated and affirmed the message that the messenger brought from God. So Luke's summary for us gives a glimpse of the divine power working through the apostles. People are being healed, outsiders are impressed, the gospel is being preached, and people are being added to the community of God's people. Lastly, in application, I want to ask this question to you as I ask myself this. What efforts are you taking for the expansion of the church? What efforts are you taking for the expansion of the church? I want to list some of these things that the early church did that are also happening by God's grace in CBF. And I want to challenge all of us that there are several avenues for us where we can serve and be part of, and build up the church for the expansion of the kingdom. Can I just list for us a few things that the early church did and had that we have in common with them by God's grace? Number one, the early church was an active community. The early church was an active community. We see that they were involved in various missionary activities outside, but they were also involved within, within the community of God's People and only by God's grace, CBF is also an active community. And I want to highlight the fact that we have various avenues for ministering both internally and to outsiders as well in the church. I just want to leave it at that. Number two, the early church enjoyed community life, the early church enjoyed community life brothers and sisters do you enjoy community life with God's people do you enjoy community life with God's people we have various avenues in CBF that facilitate such a deep fellowship and joy number three the believers in the early church cared for each other deeply they cared for each other deeply And the church was engaged in supporting the growth of its members. And I want to say, under God's grace, that CBF is also a caring community. Think of how you can be part of this special task in the church of caring for others. How I can be part of this special task of caring for the community of God's people. So I just want to leave us all with this question. What efforts are you taking for expansion of the church. So what's the point of this morning's passage? The whole passage basically says following Jesus involves a serious commitment to live for him and take his message to a dying world despite what we may face in the process. Following Jesus involves a serious commitment to live for him and take his message to a dying world despite what you and I may face In the process, when we say we are disciples of Jesus, we must be willing to acknowledge the cost of discipleship in and through our lives. You and I must be willing to acknowledge the cost of discipleship in and through our lives. I want to close with this illustration, please, and I'll just take 30 more seconds. Bear with me. I don't think I've taken much time. It's it's just 45 minutes. Okay, Uh, just 30 more seconds. And this illustration has really challenged me, and I hope it does you as well. A missionary society wrote to David Livingston, David Livingston, who was this great missionary to Africa. They asked him this question. Uh, He was living in a very remote part of Africa, and this missionary society actually wrote to him and asked this question. Have you found a good road to where you are? Have you found a good road to where you live? If so, we want to know how to send other men to join you. David Livingstone, in his own inimitable way, wrote back to the society and said this. If you have men who will only come if they know there's a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come even if there's no road at all. I want men who will come even if there's no road at all. Following Jesus requires a commitment, a very serious commitment, a wholehearted commitment. Let's thank God for the word as we close in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the summary by Luke, O oh Lord, that has challenged me personally, that has challenged all of us. And we want to thank you for the example of the early church, how they were a community together, how they understood their mission, how they understood the cost of following Jesus, and how they took it seriously in taking the mission forward. We pray, O oh Lord, that even as this challenge is set forth in front of us, we also would take following Jesus very seriously. We also would understand and acknowledge in and through our lives the cost of discipleship. In our words, in our thoughts, in our lifestyles, in our message, in our, in our engagement with people both inside and outside the church. Help us to show that we are disciples of Jesus. We pray for CBF. We pray, O Lord, that... Uh, You would continue to have your hand of favor upon us. And may we as community, a community of God's people, always live for your glory in the hope that one day we'll see you face to face and very soon. In Jesus' name.